Uh, while you're standing, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, this morning, with God's help, we will be considering uh, verses 7 through 7 through 10. And this will not be an exposition, uh, but it will be kind of a launching pad for what we will discuss this morning with God's help. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intentions, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on earth. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We pray now that you would help us, help us to receive your word, enlighten our minds. Lord, we pray that you would inflame our hearts, that through knowledge, Lord, you would elevate our desire to love you and to obey you. Give us grace now, Lord. I decrease that you may increase. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Saints, I greet you once more in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and again, welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath. This is a unique Sabbath day, is it not? For on this day, the world celebrates, and we will with them, the incarnation, rightly, of the Word, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This holiday lands uniquely on the Sabbath day, on the Lord's Day Sabbath. The last time Christmas landed on the Lord's Day was back in 2016, some of you may remember. And it won't land on the Sabbath day again until 2033, if the Lord wills, if we are still here, yes? Uh, This time of year is often referred to as the Advent season, the time during the year when our minds are oriented toward the incarnation of the Son of God. It is not required that elders preach an Advent sermon during the Advent season. But it's also not inappropriate, and it also is appropriate if they choose to do so. So then this morning, with God's help, I would like to encourage you to think deeply with me about this question. Why did God become man? Why Did God become man? Or what is the reason for the incarnation? I think that all of us might have an immediate answer to that question. Right? We might say, that's an easy question with an easy answer. God became man to die for our sins. Of course. Right? Is that how you would answer that question? Why did God become man? Would we... All of us say to die for our sins. Let me say to you that I agree. The Son of God assumed our nature to heal our nature. Uh, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. God. 
I am in agreement with what Scripture says, obviously. But this morning, I would like us to, or and this morning, I would like us to think deeper about this. What does the invisible God reveal to the world visibly by his taking the form of a servant, human flesh? What does the divine child, born of the virgin, lying humbly in a manger among beasts, the beasts of the field, Revealed to man made in God's image by his incarnation. There are at least three things that I believe God reveals through the incarnation. We're talking about the reason and then what God reveals through the incarnation. Um, there are three things that I'd like to consider with you this morning. L- let me say that while we are going to uh, speak about and, and discuss three things, these three things are just skimming the surface. And, and let me say, and not in the most sophisticated way forgive me, of the mountains that one could climb when considering why God became man. I do believe the Apostle Paul gives the church of Ephesus, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, some insight into the question of the incarnation. So with that said, let us begin. Number one, the incarnation reveals the goodness, and let me say it this way, the absolute goodness of God. The incarnation reveals the absolute goodness of God. Let's, let's uh, look to verse 7 again. In Him, Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intentions which He purposed in Him. Saints, the incarnation of the Son of God cannot and should not be separated from the salvation that Jesus Christ accomplishes in his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension. Ask the youngest among us, or even the youngest in the Lord, why did God send his son, his only begotten son, to the world? They will most assuredly answer, to die for our sins. Yes? And while even the youngest... And the youngest in the Lord know that God gave his son to save his people. It is often overlooked and often underappreciated that God was not obligated to give his son to save anyone. Brothers and sisters, when man sinned against God, God was under no obligation to rescue man from their sin. And through the incarnation, though, God reveals his absolute goodness to man. Among many things, and brothers and sisters, trust me, there are many things. God reveals his goodness as his absolute goodness as one of the chief reasons for the incarnation of the word. Paul explains to the church of Ephesus that in the incarnation, there is a mystery of the will of God that is revealed And it is revealed according to God's kindness. God reveals himself according to his kindness or in in concert with who he is, which is kind or good. For the sake of this point, we're going to say good. Paul says that when the Son of God assumed our flesh, he, Jesus Christ, revealed the absolute goodness of God. The incarnation of the word of God was not for the purpose of destruction. Isn't that amazing? God did not assume our flesh to destroy us. 
God did not take on the Word of God. The eternal Word did not assume our flesh, did not take on uh, that which we, which we are, in order to come and destroy us. But rather, the Son of God, the eternal Word, uh, took our flesh, assumed our flesh in order to, to restore us, to heal us, to restore us, and then to elevate us. And this is because of his absolute goodness. In doing so, he reveals that he is absolutely good. Work with me through this. A few weeks ago, we spoke about um, the impassibility, about impassibility and the wrath of God. Remember this? Uh, we labored using, remember this word, apophatic language. That is, that which we say about God through negation. That wrath is not a perfection in God, but rather one of the manifestations of His holiness. Or to say another way, God is eternally holy. And one of the ways that God reveals, reveals His holiness is through judgment of sin. When we speak about the absolute goodness of God, however, we can speak cataphatically. Or via positiva. Using positive language that we can say is appropriately in God, namely goodness, kindness, when we speak about wrath eternally in God, we say no. But God reveals His holiness through wrath. However, when we speak about God being eternally good and goodness being in God, we say yes. God is eternally good. It is proper to say goodness is perfectly in God. Yes? You with me? Let me say as a side note. Even this language of goodness, and I'm trying to even elevate it by saying, I'm not me, but theologians are trying to elevate it by saying absolute goodness. Even that is limited into what, into who and what God really is. Uh, we say that God is eternally good, and even that language does not fully orbit the fullness of who God is. I, I'm saying good, and He's even better than the goodness that I'm saying. I'm saying absolutely good, and He's even better than that. There is no language among men, known among men, that can sum up all that God is. So that, with humility, we continue to use words that, that even, and even marvel that they are beyond even what we are saying. God is not just good. He is absolute goodness. Let me, let me be clear, lest we make a mistake about this word good. Think about good. Whatever came to your mind first, what is good? Some of you may automatically think God is good, and that's good. But there's something that we are celebrating today, right? The world is celebrating. They, they are celebrating the Advent season. And one of the ways that the world celebrates Advent season is by giving gifts to one another. Many of you have labored. I know that, that I did, at least over the past week. To finish my shopping, right? We always, I, I, I've finished it. It's complete. Everything that I have intended to buy, needed to buy, it's all done. Buying gifts for your loved ones, good thing or bad thing? Well, good. It is good to buy gifts, right? You, you are buying gifts for your loved ones. Why are you buying gifts for them? It's because you love them. Yes, we'll get to that part in a moment. But it is good for you to show your love for them by giving them good things. Pastor Isaiah pointed this out to me, though. But even in your good gift giving, there's still imperfection there, isn't there? There's still imperfection in the good gifts that you've given to your loved ones. 
let me explain. The gift or gifts that we will give to our loved ones are good, but they're only good in our estimation. Right? We think it's good. We're hoping that they're going to think it's good. When they unwrap that gift, they're going, we're hoping that they're going to have the same kind of joy that we had when, when we purchased that gift, aren't we? We're going to say, do you like it? Do you like it? And, and we hope that their face is going to say yes. And, and some of us have done really good at hiding the, the yes and no, right, of whether or not we like something. The gift that you gave is good. Let me ask you this. Is it the most good? The gift that you gave, that you bought, that, that, that has already been opened or that will be opened, is it, is it the most good gift that you could ever give? Let me say it this way. Of all of the good things that are available to be purchased, is the thing that you gave the most good? Of all the things that are in the world, is the thing that you gave the most good of all things? Is that thing good in the most absolute sense of the word good? We might say, well, well, it's good enough. Or... It's not the most good, but it's going to have to be sufficient for them. It, it will have to do, yes? If you're like me, there are often times when we simply give up thinking and give up trying to find the best gift that we just settle for anything so that they're not left with nothing. Are you that way? We, we, I'm just going to get them a gift card. I don't know. It is not the most good that there is, and it is not the most good gift that we could give, is it? If I gave them the most good, then I would have nothing left. Do you see what we're getting at with good? There, there, there are imperfections even to the things that we say are good. We even um, shop, like I'll, I'll think about my son or my daughter or even my wife and say, that's good enough. I've, I've got them three or four things. They're, they're, I'm done with them. They don't, they don't, almost as if they don't deserve anything more good. <laughs> this is important because when we say that in the incarnation, God reveals his absolute goodness, we are not to think about goodness in the normal sense of the word that we normally think of it as. The present you got is good. But it's not the most good. It's not absolutely good. Listen to this. It's not lacking any good. The reason for the incarnation was to reveal this. The absolute goodness of God. In terms of presence, think about this. The unveiling of the goodness of God, the unwrapping of the goodness of God is located most supremely in the incarnation of the Son of God. Do you want to know how good God is? Well, he unwraps his goodness in the incarnation of the Son of God. He shows you that he, there is no good, there is no goodness lacking in God through the incarnation of the Word of God, namely Jesus Christ. And in Christ we see that God is absolutely good, lacking no good thing. How good is God? He has revealed His supreme, I'm trying to use the highest words that I can think of, His supreme goodness in the incarnation of the eternal Word, the Son of God, 
Jesus Christ. God's goodness is perfect. It's without flaw. It's without error. It's without, it's, it's absolute goodness lacking nothing. The very nature of God is goodness. All that God does is good. And when in the fullness of time, Paul says, or according to God's decree, the word assumed our flesh, it was an unveiling of the, the absolute goodness of God. But it wasn't the first and only unveiling of God's goodness, was it? The unveiling of the Son of God was the most absolute expression of God's goodness. But it wasn't the only unveiling of the goodness of God. Think about this. When God created the heavens and the earth and said, let there be light, it was an unveiling to creation of God's goodness. God shows that He is good when He creates, when He says, let there be. He reveals it to us. Not that He began to be, but He reveals to us what He eternally has been. When God called forth the waters of the earth and separated waters from the dry land, it was an unveiling of the goodness of God. When God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into him a reasonable soul, the breath of life, it was an unveiling of God's absolute goodness. Brothers and sisters, we have been made in the image of God. We know God. Last week, we considered Paul's letter to the Romans, wherein Paul argues in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, listen to this, have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we are without excuse. Man, made in the image of God, is a witness to all that is invisible in God through creation. We see all that is invisible to God, that, that we can't naturally see in God, is naturally, visibly seen through creation. Namely, Paul says, the invisible attribute of God's goodness. It's clearly seen by God. His power. God has revealed to man His goodness since the genesis of creation. But what has happened to us? Well, Paul explains in Romans 1.18 that the fall of man resulted in man's corruption, which produced in man a resisting, a, a pushing down or pushing away of those things that are clear to man. Verse 20 of Romans 1, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Man, made in God's image, <clears throat> knows that God is good. But rather than giving glory to the one who is eternally good and absolutely good, man looks at created things and attributes goodness and wonder to them rather than to God. Pastor Isaiah mentioned this to me in conversation, that you can hear of uh, so-called atheists, Speak of the sheer wonder of the cosmos and of the infinite possibilities of the universe. They marvel at just how fascinating and how good what we see really is. But they stop short of honoring the one who is the creator of all those things. Because man is corrupted. 
Man is corrupted by sin, therefore he suppresses natural knowledge of the goodness of God, which should produce glory and praise to God. And here's the wonder of it all. Because God is good, and because God changes not, even though we don't honor Him the way we should, God does not stop unveiling His goodness to us. Marvel at that. We're created to know that God is good. We suppress that knowledge. And God doesn't come and say, I'm going to destroy you because of your lack of honoring me. Instead, God continues increasingly to reveal his goodness to man. Because God doesn't change. God's not like, at least me, let me say, that when someone is not good to me, then I'm not good to them. That when someone is not good to me, I cease being good to them. I, I might even decrease altogether in my, in my acknowledging of them. You know this. You think about, some of us think about, what did so-and-so buy me last year? Well, based upon what they bought me last year, that will determine on what I buy them this year. They didn't spend very much on me last year, therefore I'm not going to spend very much on them this year. Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, change not. Do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. God is saying, you're not giving to me what you should be giving to me. But I haven't stopped giving to you what I have always decreed that I will give to you. I don't change. That's why you're not destroyed, even though you're not giving me, God, what you should be giving me. I'm not going to destroy you because I don't change. There's nothing that we can do to... To change who God is. God can't be acted upon to create some kind of change in God toward us or even in himself. It is within the perfect justice of God. And it would not have diminished his goodness one bit to consume man, to utterly pour out his wrath, which is an unveiling of his holiness, the moment that man committed treason against God. God could have immediately, when, when Adam sinned and, and broke covenant with God, God could have immediately destroyed man. Think of all the goodness that God revealed to man in the five days and then six days of creation. All of the goodness that God unveils to his creatures and to creation. And man tramples on the absolute goodness of God. It would have been within the right of God to absolutely, utterly obliterate man because of his sin against God. But God doesn't do that. Instead, God continues to unveil his absolute goodness to man in spite of man's not being good. Paul is going to say that it was a divine act of his goodness and kindness. What was the purpose of God not consuming all of humanity? Paul will say it was so that in the fullness of time, or Romans 5, at just the right time, the time of the decree by God, who was outside of time, that God would make known to his creatures the mystery of his eternal will. How? Through the incarnation of the eternal word, the Son of God. That God would say, I'm going to delay this destruction. I'm going to continue to reveal my goodness until I'm going to, at the right time, reveal the absolute um, most perfect, supreme expression of his absolute goodness, the incarnation of the Son of God. Why didn't God destroy man the moment that man sinned against him? Not because God is not concerned with sin. 
but rather so that in the incarnation God might communicate or unveil his supreme goodness in his son. What are you celebrating this season? I I hope that you are celebrating the supreme goodness of God in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It belongs to the essence of goodness to communicate itself to others. It belongs to the essence. It's because of who God is that He communicates. Because God is so good, He communicates Himself to others. That's why He does it. When man rebelled against God, God removed him from the Garden of Eden, from his presence. But God didn't give mankind the silent treatment. He didn't say, I'm never going to speak to you again. We're done. You know what we do, right? We're done. (laughs) Rather, through Noah, God communicates to his people that one like him would come and give rest to his people. He communicates through Abraham, the father of many nations. One would arise and bless the nations by saving every nation. Saving one from every nation. In God's goodness, he communicated that one would arise like Joseph, who would rule and save many. In God's goodness, he communicated that one would arise like Moses, a prophet who speaks on God's behalf. In God's goodness, he communicated that one would arise like David, a warrior after God's heart. Saints, through types and shadows, through patriarchs and prophets, through sacrifices and covenants, God communicates to his people, even though through a a glass dimly, his absolute and supreme goodness that culminates, that, that finds its apex in the incarnation of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, God provides the full, the fullest self-communication. Titus 3.2 For we also once were foolish ourselves. Listen to this. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appear, He saved us. Through the incarnation, God communicates to mankind perfect goodness and perfect kindness. God gave the absolute best that he could give himself. Why? Because he is absolutely, supremely, and perfectly good. What are we celebrating? When you go home and and you're with your family and you're opening gifts, think about this. The gift that has been given to you is the most perfect gift. And it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Number two, in the incarnation, God reveals His absolute wisdom. Verse 9 of Ephesians 1, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth, Ephesians 1, nine. Brothers and sisters, why did God become man? We've just considered that one of the reasons for the incarnation was so that God would reveal his perfect and infinite goodness. Here now, the apostle reveals that the incarnation occurred when it occurred. If you're taking notes, circle when it occurred, because in God's infinite wisdom, because all that had come before the incarnation, those administrations, God had decreed that they had reached their suitable point. We're going to tease this out. That is this. That all of those administrations before Christ had communicated and accomplished all that God had intended for them to accomplish and to communicate. Therefore, 
they had reached their time of expiration. That makes sense that they've reached the moment in which they would expire in order to in order to usher in the new. The fullness of time had come. Uh, in a sense, like giving birth to a child. Uh, women, you know this more than I do, of course. That there are certain markers that you pass until the fullness of time comes when it is time for you to deliver. And so it is with the coming of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In God's infinite wisdom, God had decreed a thing. And that things would take place and ultimately expire until the thing that God had eternally decreed would come to pass. Namely, the revealing of the Word in flesh, Jesus Christ. Hold on to that thought now. Hold on to that thought, the fullness of time, okay? I'd like for you to consider with me, before we get to that thought, the question of this. Is the incarnation of the Son of God, was it necessary? Was the incarnation of the Word, the Son of God, was it necessary? I submit to you that one of the reasons for the incarnation was in order that God would reveal His wisdom to make creatures made in His image, you and I, saved, but it would be at just the right time. Could God have saved you and I some other way? Could God have saved you and I some other way? Or was it necessary for God to assume our flesh and to die on a cross for our sin? Did it have to be this way? Let me be careful and God help me when we speak about what God can and cannot do. He alone is God. God could have, if he so willed, decree to save man some other way. What other way? I don't know, because I'm not God. But I know that God can do all things. So the incarnation, what would we say? Well, we would say, not necessary, but theologians like Aquinas would say, most fitting. Most fitting. Isaiah has considered this question in the past. The fittingness of the incarnation is according to an an unveiling of the wisdom of God. God does it this way in order to reveal his infinite, absolute wisdom. Does that make sense? We're asking, did it have to be this way? And God's answer is, it was this way because it was fitting, most reasonable. I'm going to get to that. what that means in a moment. It was the most reasonable way for God to reveal his absolute wisdom. Um, when we're thinking about these things and speaking about um, fitting, think about this, these three things. Reasonable, expedient, and wise. Reasonable, expedient, and wise. Now, here's an example. It's a, it's a practical one. Think of all the ways that you can get from California to New York. You thinking about them? Variety of ways. Let's take the most basic, and then we'll go to the, to the, the most expedient. You can walk. Anybody up for that in the, in the wintertime? You can walk California to New York. I had to look it up. I was studying and I, I said to my wife, well, how long do you think? And she said, six months. Think about how long you think. Here's the answer from Google. 
Assuming good weather. Listen to this one. Excellent physical condition. I'm not pointing myself. I'm saying that person has to be in, because I'm not. No unreasonable delays. If you walked, listen to this, 30 miles a day, you will arrive at the Big Apple between 100 and 110 days, namely, or, or specifically, about three and a half months if you walked 30 miles a day. Don't we look at our things and we go, I walked two miles today. <laughs> well, since we're, we're not all 30 mile a day walkers, it would probably take us next year. We'll see you at the dropping of the ball. Walking is one of the ways in which you can get from California to New York. But listen to this. Is it the most reasonable way? Is it the most expedient way? And listen to this. Is it the wisest way that you can get from California to New York? The answer probably is no. Could you, though, if you wanted to? Yes. But is it the most fitting way? You can walk probably for the next year to get to New York, or you can take a plane and get there in five hours. Which way is the most reasonable, expedient, and wise? We would probably say fly. Dear ones, the incarnation of the Word of God was not necessary. God could have saved another way. But the Word assuming our flesh is the most reasonable, expedient, and wise way decreed by the triune God. To do what? To reveal to his people his infinite wisdom and in the process, save his people. Was it necessary for God to become man in order for man to be saved? Well, no in one sense, because God could have decreed to save another way. But yes, in another sense, because the sufferings and glory of Christ is the way that God chose to save. Therefore, it is the most fitting way. And therefore, it is the way in which God reveals his absolute wisdom. And in this way, God unveils, and we're going to keep using that word because of the season, he's unveiling his wisdom in the most perfect way. How does the incarnation reveal the wisdom of God? I ask you to hold on to a thought. Why didn't the Son of God, why didn't God immediately become incarnate immediately after man fell into sin? You ever think about that? Why so long, God? Why did God wait? Why, why wasn't at the very moment that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree and went into hiding, that when God came down, rather than come down to curse, God came down, and also to give a promise, God came down to immediately save and restore. Why was it not at that moment? We're talking about wisdom, aren't we? God made a, a, a choice of, no, God eternally decreed Something according to his wisdom. It was not at that very moment, because according to God's wisdom, the most reasonable, expedient, and wise way would be to allow man to continue in his sin. Why not in, in, in Genesis chapter 6, when it seems that all of, that the corruption of mankind had reached its apex of wickedness. All men are doing what, what is right in their own eyes until God destroys all mankind. Why not then? Why not rather than rains coming down, God coming down and saving all men? Why didn't the Son of God assume our flesh at that time? 
Paul, through the revelation of God, through the inspiration of the Spirit, reveals that the answer is the wisdom of God. That God's timing is according to his wisdom. That is in the fullness of time. What times? The times in which man's sense of his sin, his need for a savior, his inability to save himself, and his cry to God would reach the appropriate point. God would allow all these things to take place over all this period of time, according to his wisdom, so that man's need for a savior would reach its absolute pinnacle. Man would learn he's corrupted. Man who's created with the law of God written on his heart knows that God, the creator, requires absolute goodness that he's not able to accomplish. God then gives man his written law. And man sees all that God requires of him. And that it goes not just to deed, but also even to thought. God requires sacrifice of animals, but the blood of bulls and goats, man finds out, it can't take away his sin. Do you see this 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 growing Almost kind of like this building. If you think of a symphony and it's building and it's building, man is left yet again longing for a permanent and lasting atonement of sin. And there's this, this building, um, anticipation. And all of these administrations are going to find that they find their crescendo. If you're thinking about a symphony in Christ. They're finding, they're summing up. There's a building, there's an anticipation that ultimately finds it's summing up. And ah, Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. This is how I can know that He is the one that I must turn to to be saved. Because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. I could not live according to the law perfectly. But Christ's sacrifice does it for me. Christ has lived a sinless life. I see that all of these things that, that I have become frustrated in myself of not being able to accomplish and not being able to give has found its fullness and completeness in Christ. And it is in the fullness of time that this is revealed. And it is according to God's perfect and absolute wisdom. It was the unveiling of the wisdom of God in those types and shadows of the old economy that would find their fulfillment, their summing up in Christ. They would find that in all of those former things that they were pointing to Christ, the incarnate one, who would be be both the substance and the fulfillment of all of those things. The prophets speak of one who will come and restore man's image. They speak of one who will come from God to restore man and, and, and return man to God. And he does it in the most unlikely of ways. Isaiah sees through, the prophet Isaiah sees through a glass dimly when he foretells foretells of the Holy One, Emmanuel, God with us, being born of a virgin, suffering for His people. And when the angels sing the first hymn of praise to the God-man, no one would have guessed that the location of that worship service would have been in a stable. No one would have guessed that the, the Holy One would be enthroned in a manger. A place where beasts of the field come to eat and drink. And yet, this was a manifestation of the perfect wisdom of God. And as he grew and continued to take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, so that the wisdom of this world would be, be seen as foolishness, for he calls tax collectors and sinners to be his disciples. He eats and, with, with, and drinks with drunkards and heals Roman soldiers, servants, 
He's a friend to the lowly and to the prostitute. He came to call sinners, not the righteous. He came to heal the sick, not those who say they are well. Betrayed, falsely accused, opened not his mouth, endured suffering as a lamb who was being led to the shearers or to the slaughter. And for what purpose? All of these things are confounding the so-called righteous around him. This is not the way the Savior is supposed to be. But it was in accordance with God's wisdom. So that he would take the wisdom of this world and make it foolish. Scriptures say that, that, that the, even the foolish things of God. He offers himself up as a ransom. He assumes our flesh might heal us in his passion. And he does this to bring humanity back to himself. All things come from God so that through Christ all things can return to God. And all of this was an unveiling of God's absolute perfect wisdom. Let's deal with our final point as we close. The incarnation of the Son of God reveals the wisdom of God or reveals the love of God. I had five points. I cut it down to two, to three. Verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Dear saints, as we bring this sermon to a close and consider the final reason for the incarnation, let us rejoice that God has revealed to us his love through his son. The apostle declares that in Christ, the Son of God, we have redemption through his blood or through his sacrificial work on the cross, we are saved. It is through that work that our sins are forgiven. And this is according to the grace of God revealed in Christ, which Paul says God lavished on us, lavished on us. It's to bestow in generous or extravagant amounts or quantity God is pouring out on us, bestowing on us, that, that is gifting to us His grace in lavish amounts, in exceeding and extravagant amounts. And what is the reason for this lavish gift? God is unveiling His love for you. Do you think about a gift? <clears throat> Think about the most perfect gift that you... Uh, no, think about the best gift that you ever received in all of your life. That's interesting, isn't it? I was sitting there thinking about all the gifts. I could only think of a few. Of all the gifts that you've ever received in your entire life, only a few come to mind. Think about it. Think about your, your, the best gift you ever got. You might go, ah, uh, you might be able to think of one or two. You can't think of all of them, even though you've been given many things. And yet... The thing that you think about the most was one of those things that for you touched your heart because it was one of the best expressions of someone's love for you. God unveils his love for you through the giving of his only begotten son in the incarnation. Or to say it another way, God became man in order to reveal his love for you so that you would return to him in love. The reason for the incarnation of the son of God is goodness, wisdom, and the sum of all these things. And and I cut out. I cut out power. I cut out justice. The sum of all these things is love. What are they all equaling? God loves you. 
God's love is not like our love, though, is it? We've discussed this. There's a vast gulf of a distinction between the love of the Creator and the love of the creature. God's love is not like our love. There's a similarity in that we both love. And there is something in the way, in our love that reveals God's love, but not on a one-to-one basis, not in the exact same way. For example, God loves and we love, but our love is passable and God's love is impassable. When we think of the love of God, we must not assume, and I know that we don't, that our love is just like God's love, because we know that it's not. Our love can be acted upon, can't it? Our love has the potential to be changed depending upon occurrences. Last time I will, take for example the gifts that you have or that you will receive today. Your love today will go through straight stages of fluctuation, won't it? Today your love will vary. And it will vary depending upon what you unwrap. Children, you will unwrap gifts today and your love will increase when you see toys. And then your love will most likely decrease when you see clothes. <laughs> this will be true for all of us in some kind of way today, won't it? And also for the rest of our lives. Our love ebbs and flows. It varies. It shifts. It loves today with great passion. And then tomorrow, passion has all but disappeared. But it's not so with God. The love of God does not change. This is why he can say in Malachi 3, because I, the Lord, change not. That is why we are not destroyed. In spite of the sins that man commits, God cannot be acted upon to, to love any more or love any less than he has eternally been or eternally has. And God cannot eternally, God cannot be more displeased or less displeased with sin than he eternally has been, speaking improperly, of course. God's love for you today is not greater than it was yesterday. He's not loving you more and more. You're loving Him more and more. He's getting sweeter to you as the days go by. But you're not getting sweeter to Him as the days go by. He remains perfectly, listen to this, He remains perfectly loving. When we say, he's not loving you more and more, we might go, well, that's that's kind of weird. Why would he not love me more today than yesterday? Because he's not like you. And thanks be to God that he's not like you. That he has loved you with a perfect love, an absolute love that does not vary, shift, or change based upon what you do or don't do. And one of the ways, the absolute supreme way in which God has unveiled his love for you is through the incarnation of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's love is perfect. Think about the word perfect. And I did a lot of questions. I'm sorry, but I had to. When we shop, we're shopping for the perfect gift, aren't we? What is the perfect gift? There is actually no such thing as the perfect gift. Here's why. Because if the perfect gift were perfect, then you would never need another gift. And some of you go, I don't need anything. Of course you say that. My wife does that to me every year. I don't need anything. And then when October starts to come, she will say at least 20 or 30 things. Just get me this for Christmas. I thought you didn't need anything. It sounds like you don't need at least 30 things. If you have already received the perfect gift, then you have the one gift to rule them all. 
But the perfect gift is actually the imperfect gift. Because it only brings temporary joy. The gift, even though it may be the most perfect gift of the time, it will not continue to reap ongoing benefits of joy that you had when you first opened it. You might go, uh, yeah, I really, you might open it and then later go, I really do, I really do like that. But it's not the same as when you first unveiled it. I hope I'm not ruining your holidays. <laughs> All these talk about bad gifts and, but the love of God is perfect. There's no flaw in God's love. And there is no flaw in the manner or gift in which God has unveiled his love, namely the incarnation of the Son of God. God reveals his perfect love through the incarnation of the Son of God and the benefits that we receive from this gift, they never diminish. You should never look at Christ and go, yeah, it's it's pretty good, but it's not as good as when I first... No. When you consider Christ... There's an ongoing benefit. There's ongoing fruit. There's ongoing joy that never stops. There's ongoing love that continues to increase. You think you loved him a lot when you first were saved. And when it comes, when you realize it, you go, I I love him even more now. I know him even more now. God has done so much to my mind and to my heart that I don't know if I know that I'm thankful that I continue to grow in my love for him. We all know the verse, don't we? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The eternal God, the invisible God, assumed the visible to heal our flesh. He appears, as Dominic Legg says, to publish the Trinity, to teach us about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Christ is the divine exemplar. He displays for humanity how to live the blessed life. So that we might live the blessed life. He dies in our place and takes upon his shoulders the chastisement that brings us peace. He raises, rises from the dead in power, declares victory over sin and death. Christ, the incarnate word, did this for a particular people to redeem us by his blood. And why was the reason? Why did God do all of this? Ephesians 1.8 Love. Out of love. In love He predestined us. In love He did this. For love He created us. Why did God reveal His goodness to man made in His image? Because He loved us. God could have ended His work of creation on the fifth day. God did not create man out of some void in God. God did not have a a man-shaped hole in his heart that was filled when man was created. Ah, man's here. Now I feel better. God didn't make man on the sixth day because he was lonely. God could have, if he willed, ended the work of creation on the fifth day. And he would have still concluded, and it was very good. But God willed to create man. And you are different from every other creature in the entire universe. You are different. Your soul is different than the soul of plants. Your soul is different than the soul of animals. God has given to you a reasonable soul to know Him and to love Him. 
Why? Because God loves you. Because God loves you. The reason for our existing on this side of existence is because of God's love for you. God made you to love Him because He first loved you. And God has revealed His greatest um, expression of love for you, not just in creating you, but coming Himself to show how much He loves you by giving Himself for you. God's way of unveiling His love for you is through His Son. God did not come as an angel. Did He? He came as a human. Which I pray says to you this, that you have worth and value. He did not assume the form of an angel. He did not assume the form of a plant or an animal. He assumed your nature and my nature. Saint, you have dignity as a human. For it is in your flesh that the eternal word came. He has not left us in our sin, but has revealed his goodness, wisdom, and love through the incarnation of the Son of God. It's about salvation. What is the incarnation about? It's about salvation, yes. But it's also about God advancing our humanity. Bringing us to beatitude, to the blessed life. God is making our lives improved upon. And there's nothing that strengthens our hope for this life as we continue to walk with Christ than seeing just how much God loved us. If God loved you this much that He would come in our flesh, then there's hope for your lives. There's hope in all circumstances of life. Because God became human. And when you are with your family members today, and you are looking at those who are unsaved, look at them with this in mind. God came to reveal Himself even to them. There is dignity in their humanity. God came to show up His great love. Let's worship Him today. Let's give to Him all of our devotion, even when we are with our families and our friends, let's not be deceived for one moment that Christmas is about the gift that's in that box today. That the Sabbath is about any bo- anything that's in a box, but rather it's about what came in human flesh, who came in human flesh. The eternal Word, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose and ascended not only for our justification, but for our elevation as humans so that we might return to Him in glory. Let us pray.